Hey guys, and guess who's back? It's Ben here of the Weymouth Street Massive, back with Back of the Net Season 2. We're back with more podcasts, bigger than better than ever, and we are so excited to bring you these ones. Um, so please do enjoy. If you haven't already, drop us a follow over on Instagram, follow us on uh, uh, TikTok as well, and on YouTube, all under the Weymouth Street Massive. And of course, follow Back of the Net podcast so you don't miss anything that's coming up with some very exciting podcasts but welcome to our first episode back and it's with referee linton wood so please enjoy hey guys and welcome back it's ben here of the weymouth street massive and we're back it's been a little while it's season two of back of the net podcast and it's great to have you all with us um and we've got an extra special guest to kick off our first episode of the second season it is linton wood uh he a referee and many, many other things in the world of football. Um, and he's come on our podcast to talk to us today. Hi, Linton. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. And we'll be talking about lots and lots of things to, uh, today. And we'll dive right in in a second. But just so people know who you are, you're, <clears throat> you've done quite a lot of refereeing in the round, the non-league pyramid. Um, currently as assistant ref, is that right? Uh, I, I do both nowadays. Obviously, I'm, I'm 55, so I'm um, my, my days going up the ladder are behind me. So I'm uh, an assistant, typically at step five and six, and a referee at uh, step seven and eight. So refereeing in the local senior league, which is Leicestershire for me. Oh, brilliant! Well, we'll we'll talk about that in a bit, and hopefully, we'll we'll get some good, great stories and and also some uh, great informative. Uh, talk between us both um for the listeners at home but we're going to first go back in time a little bit um to probably your your, your younger days um we'll look at being part of a, a west midlands league club and starting a pub team i mean that's quite an interesting set of things to do yeah yeah and well my my um my, my introduction to non-league football was way, way back. My first live match was the 1976 FA Trophy final, which was Stafford Rangers against Scarborough. Um, unfortunately, Stafford lost 3-2. Um, and I think three years later, I went again when they beat Kettering. So I saw them lift the trophy on that occasion. Um, then going back into the early 80s with friends at school, um, one of my friends had started to go and watch Hensford Town in the West Midlands League Premier Division, which in today's money back then would be step four, I guess, as an equivalent. Um, it was a cheap day out. We could get the bus to the ground from, from where I lived, a um, bag of chips after the game, a programme, a football match for you know a few pounds. Didn't put a, too much of a dent in the pocket money. So it was probably then really where I got a real interest in non-league football. Oh, it sounds like a good day out to me. <laughs> it was it was a proper old school non-league ground, the old Hensford ground. They're, they're in a new one nowadays, which is pretty state-of-the-art in comparison. But the old one was quite a big concrete terrace, corrugated stands, uh, you know, all sort of uh, quite rickety. And there's photographs of it on, uh, on Google, the old Cross Keys ground. And it was a, a real enjoyable place to go and watch non-league football they used to get reasonable crowds maybe average three four hundred back then in in that league was quite good i bet i imagine the atmosphere was was 
particularly great. Um, and I mean, for, for such a prize, what could go wrong? <laughs> Where I sort of moved on next from there is I'd started, I got a girlfriend who um, lived uh, in a sort of place called Brayton, which is uh, in Staffordshire. And she lived quite close to a team called Brayton Social, who were also in the West Midlands League Premier Division at that point. Um, one Saturday, I think she had a Saturday job. Uh, I went round and watched them. They were playing in the FA Vars against a team called Wolverton Town. And they'd got a sort of one-page programme. And uh, in that, in the sort of, really, it was just a team sheet with a few notes saying that the league had, um, had put a, a rule out that all teams had got to produce a programme and they were asking for help. So being somebody that has liked to write and, and do a few things, I, I volunteered my services. So... Then from the rest of that season, the whole of the following season and partway into the season after that, I became their programme editor. Um, it ended when, probably out of the blue, the team pulled out of the league. Um, sort of two years from when I took the job on, mid-season. Um, I still don't know why it happened, but uh, they just stopped mid-season and, and that was that. Oh, that's, I mean, it's just only a shame when clubs... Um, particularly mid-season, go go out of uh, of leagues and, and of the the the, um, the football pyramid. It's quite upsetting, I imagine. But would you mind explaining to to? I mean, for I have a rough idea, but I, some people might not know what, what does a program editor do or entail as a job. Well, I should imagine nowadays it, it would be an awful lot easier with the technology that's available. Back then, when I was doing it, I would physically write it by hand. Uh, and the secretary's wife would type it and it would involve cutting league tables and photocopying those and actually helping physically pin them together on a, a, the day before a game so that they could uh, then be sold on the day. Um, Brighton weren't a particularly well-supported club back then. They would get some decent crowds, but that would be when they were playing teams such as Hales Owen Town, Tamworth, Hensford, bigger games where those clubs might bring a few hundred spectators of their own. Their own sort of core supporters were probably only 40 or 50, but it was, um, it was interesting. It was something I enjoyed doing. I think the second season we had a, a printer sponsor the club. They did a very uh, impressive looking cover and feedback I got from other clubs where people reviewed programmes was that I was, I was doing a good job. So it was, uh, yeah, it was not something I planned to do. I just sort of spur of the moment decision when I saw that note asking for help. And uh, you know, I, I did it. You, I'm sure you know yourself when you're involved in a club, you get close to the players, you chat to them after the game. They enjoy reading your match reports in the local paper. And you know, sure, nowadays you're doing video blogs of games, etc. But it's 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 something you get quite passionate about. You, you sort of follow that team, you go with them home and away, and it's uh, it, it's quite a ride at times. Oh, it's, it's an amazing feeling, and, and particularly, I don't think there's any particular way to get closer to football nowadays than to have a, a, a role, no matter how, how small or how big, volunteer or paid, in within a, a club, and particularly at the, the, the level of, of non-league football. Um, and, and I think... It's a special, special feeling, not only being a supporter, but knowing that you have a hand in the, the working, the cogs that are turning. 
So I, I completely agree. Getting to know the players, the club, the the people in around the the uh, the the uh, ownership of the club is it's a great it's a great experience. Um, uh, I, I know I've enjoyed it, and by the sounds of it, you had a good time too. Um, program editing. Yeah, it was just a shame how it ended. I probably would have uh, carried on certainly if they they hadn't sort of uh, stopped. I, I never, it's a long time ago now, probably going back to about 1986, 87, when they uh, pulled out. They, they Happily, the team is still going nowadays. I think they had another spell where they, they sort of probably dropped back to County League. They did get back up into the West Midlands League and Midland combination, but those leagues were further down the pyramid then with the appearance of the National League North and South and um, the Midland League, which sort of so they, it probably pushed it further down the pyramid then um, but they they function quite successfully now in the Staffordshire Senior League I think they were runners up last season I think recently they got to the uh, Staffordshire Vars final which is the second tier county cup behind the senior cup so they're um, yeah they're, they're a, a club that's going a nice little ground that's worth visiting for for ground hoppers no I, no, I can imagine so and uh, hopefully, uh, if I find myself up north, I'll pay him a visit and uh, get a good look at the the ground there. Um, it was there something in particular that you took away from that experience. I think that the main thing I took from that was probably a, a love of non-league football that's stayed with me since. I mean, the, the spell going to watch Hensford with school friends that was just a sort of we really enjoyed the games. It was a sort of a teenage day out. If we, as we got a little bit older, you could maybe get a beer if you behaved and things like that <laughs> in the clubhouse. But actually being physically involved in a club, that that probably cemented my love of non-league football. And I've, I've followed it ever since, really. The, the, the main game that sticks out from that period was... Um, it was only a second round FA Vars tie, but back in the 80s, Hales Owen Town dominated it for a while. And uh, Britain got through the qualifying rounds and in the second round drew Hales Owen away. And I think they'd won it the, pre the previous year. Um, and Britain were sort of towards the bottom of the league. Hales Owen were top and it was expected to be a sort of... Uh, one-sided affair. And it, it turned out to be anything but. It was a real battle. It was 1-1 at full-time. Um, Britain were probably unlucky not to actually win it in, in normal time. It went to extra time and Hales Owen won 2-1, but there was um, over 700 there from memory and it was uh, it was a real sort of good day out with that little team taking on the, the bigger team and I think Hales Owen went on to win it again that year and uh, they, they certainly knew they'd had a tough day out on, uh, on that occasion. <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine. What a what a what a memory there that is, and I, it's amazing that those those games you go into and the, the crowd picks up, and it's a uh, uh, and you get a game which you didn't expect, but is very much thoroughly enjoyed by everybody. Um, so what a what a great story, and and I guess that sort of feeds into you mentioned before a couple of years down the uh, the line, the club drops out of the league. Where where do you go from there then? You're no longer um, program editing. It's a long time ago. I, I think I did 
a couple of things that I put in Hensford programme who were by then in the Southern League, but I, I just wasn't really minded to um, try and take on the job elsewhere. Um, I've always had involvement in other things. I was sort of, uh, I was doing quite a bit of fishing at the time as well. So I, I'd, I'd got uh, my time doing that. Obviously, you're in your early 20s, you're going out um, socialising with friends and things like that at that point. And I, I probably, other than watching a, a few games uh, here and there, probably didn't have a lot of involvement with football for a number of years until round about 1990. I was, uh, the job I was working at the time, some of the guys, uh, we started having a, a kick around at lunchtime. We decided to go and enter a five-a-side competition. We didn't disgrace ourselves. So that the next thing from there was to try and form a team. One of the guys um, arranged a friendly against uh, one of his friend's teams that ran a pub team, and we got absolutely battered, I think about 16 <laughs> 2. Uh, but I did actually score in that game, but we, we sort of thought, no, we, we, we want to sort of progress with this. So a friend's dad ran two pubs locally. Uh, the one pub had already got a team, so he said he would. Um, get us a kit and allow us to base ourselves at the other pub so we got a team together we we got people who were a bit better at football and um, and that was that we 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 went into the local Sunday league we didn't disgrace ourselves we I think finished mid-table the first year the following year we became runners-up um, only narrowly losing out on the title and uh, yeah the, the club sort of went great guns from there we got a second team and um, a good social base and for probably the next seven or eight seasons I was involved in that I was secretary of both clubs and uh, there's a lot of running around involved in that even <laughs> at pub team level and uh, yeah that 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 was where I was for football then probably until pushing my 30th birthday. Oh that's, that's I mean that's really really cool to be a part of I, I can imagine doing um, that sort of work, but also being part of the team playing. and um, But what's you mentioned running around quite a lot, being a secretary of two clubs. What does it really take to run a team, a pub team? It's, it's more work than you would think. As secretary, I was typically the one that would go to. Um, obviously, the league meetings would be held monthly. You'd physically attend those. Um, I did actually write a programme. Uh, for the club, it was a little bit infrequent. It wasn't game in, game out. But I, by then, I got a word processor, and um, they were a lot more light-hearted than um, <laughs> writing a program for a semi-professional club. It was a lot of it was uh, banter with teammates and 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 that sort of thing, and just a way of keeping people involved with the club. But you're there, you're putting the nets up, putting the corner flags out, making sure the kits washed. Um, making sure that food's organised at the pub, everybody knows where they're going, um, dealing with disciplinary matters. So obviously every time a player gets cautioned or sent off, um, you've got an involvement in that, getting match reports sent over to the league secretary. And again, back then, no email. A lot of that was physical. You're either physically posting documentation or putting it through someone's door. So it is quite a lot of work running a club at that level and quite often it's just one or two people that's doing everything yeah I, I can imagine I it's, I mean I, I only have a small 
uh, pinky finger in, in the pond of uh, working with, with clubs, but I can imagine being a part of not only one, but two um, pub, pub teams, it would be quite hectic at times. Um, and it certainly sounds like it. And, and I mean, there's a big thing today in this their tradition of uh, Sunday league sides and, and, and Sunday leagues. What would be your one piece of advice to someone who's looking to start a, a pub or a Sunday league side? You need to get a, a core of people that are going to be prepared to help do things. Otherwise, you'll just end up in the situation where it's raining and you know you and maybe one other are taking the nets down while everybody else is already in the pub. And by the time you get there, <laughs> they're on the second or third pint and all the chips are gone. No. So it's, uh, yeah. It, it, you, you need to get a core of people that are prepared to to help organise things. I, I should imagine some things are easier now that you can email all your documentation and um, you know and these sort of things. But still, nets have to be put up. Um, you've got to organise finances, who's paying the rent for the pitch, and um, collecting fines, and you know all these sort of things, and, and organising your administration. Otherwise, you will just rack up fine after fine. Yeah. So, yeah, just get a core of people that are prepared to to be in there and help you. And that you've got that that group of people then that will organise and run the club. Yeah, I, sound advice. <laughs> yeah. For though, I mean, it's certainly not a light, uh, a light thing to undertake. But I mean, what more what better advice can you have than to, to surround yourself with a, not only a team, but friends and uh, people yeah. who are willing to help you out at every every turn um and then to fast forwarding a little bit from from there you you we talked to just very briefly at the start about being a referee uh, an assistant at times and how how does that first contact with the world of refereeing come about for you well for me it was kind of by accident i think um the team that I'd set up and or helped set up and and, and ran. Um, it, as I mentioned, it expanded. We got a second team. Um, the first season, the second team did very badly. They finished bottom of the league. Uh, we didn't get humiliated. We did win a few games and draw a few games. We lost a lot of matches, sort of six three and things like that. We we didn't get. Um, completely humiliated but we didn't really have a manager the guy that took the job on um sort of appeared infrequently and uh we sort of managed ourselves we were scratching a team together so at the end of that season we got a new manager um he brought in a number of players that he knew which were better standard players um we still had joint training and um the arrangement had always been that the manager of the first team had the pick of the players. So when he saw some of the players that came in, the new players with the second team, he, he thought, right, I want him, him and him. <laughs> and these guys were like, no, um, we've signed to play for the second team. The manager's our friend and that's that. And it, it sort of escalated and it, it ended up being a, a fallout that saw the two teams split into two separate clubs. I didn't particularly want to take sides. Um, it had kind of been my baby. So um, I, I'd moved to an adjacent town at that point. So I signed for a team in that town. I, I, I knew the secretary from the league meetings and whatnot. And um, 
saw out the remainder of that season with a different team and played the following season with a different team. But by chance, one Sunday, there wasn't a referee, which happens from time to time, and the clubs have to agree on somebody to take the job. I did it um, and sort of thought, yeah, it's OK. I, I did reasonably well. The players were relatively kind to me. It wasn't a particularly difficult game. And um, so I sort of thought at the end of that season, I, I'd give this a go. So you contact the county FA and uh, you do the course and um, away you go. Uh, back when I did it, it was a case of you would have about six weeks, I guess, sort of academic training you would go there for a couple of hours there'd be referees training you you and at the end of it you would sit and pass an exam um for me at that point casting my mind back I, I was really um kind of out on my own once I'd qualified you, you just right out you go referee nobody's standing there watching you and um you either sink or swim I think nowadays I think referees that there's more on the job training. I think they have to do six matches. I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong on that. It was a long time ago, but <laughs> for me, but they, they then have somebody standing with them until um, at such a point that they're, they're signed off. But I, I very nearly quit in my second game because uh, I was having such a bad time at half, half time. I can remember thinking this really isn't worth it. This is too hard. The players don't, know that you're a new referee they don't cut you any slack if somebody realizes you don't look confident they'll be on you like a ton of bricks and um you know I, I was really all for throwing it in at half time but there was a match on the adjacent pitch the referee there realized I was having a hard time came and had a chat with me and and sort of suggested I use my whistle more probably being a player um my foul recognition was poor you're sort of looking there, somebody puts a heavy tackle in, you're thinking, nah, great tackle, get up and get on with it. But of course, <laughs> that player mentality doesn't always work as a referee. The player who then thinks he's been fouled, he gets up, looks for revenge and goes and kicks the same guy up in the air. And before you know it, you've got everybody kicking lumps out of each other. So, uh, yeah, I think that that person just there um, realising that I was having a tough time and taking the, that, few minutes to come and have a chat with me at half time probably uh, changed it for me and and then 20 years later I'm 20 odd years later I'm, I'm still refereeing although I did have a break in the middle so uh, yeah it, it, it can be tough particularly yeah, for I, new referees yeah I can I can only imagine um as someone who's not refereed myself um but I've you know I've know a, a few people who are who do the job at various levels and everybody's got a story, I think, um, or a few, sadly, of uh, how challenging it can, it can be. For, for those of like myself who, who haven't had any experience as a, as a referee or, or maybe have only done it, been a, been a linesman in a, a, a youth game or something like that, um, how unique is that experience as a referee in the middle of the park, because you've been on both sides of, of, of that that fence on the side of the pitch and in the middle. How unique is that? It's very different. Um, I've also had a little bit of um, involvement in coaching a youth team as well when my son played football. Um, that was really in my break in football. But certainly when you start off and you're going out there with 
club assistants, you, you're really there on your own and it, it can be lonely. Um, you also realise um, quite quickly is that you've got that, that decision-making process that you have to make out on the pitch is instant. You, you've got one view at full speed and you've got to have the confidence to be able to make a decision very quickly and I, I mentioned just now that that confidence is that players will very very quickly recognize if your confidence has gone so mm-hmm. a piece of advice to new referees is to even if you don't feel confident is to try and appear confident make those decisions and don't allow what's going on around you to distract you focus on doing the job and, and do it and when I started, there was just three classes, class one, class two, class three. I got promoted quite quickly to the old class one. Um, but I did what is called in refereeing terms a, a double jump, which um, the, the classes of referees are different nowadays. And, and I think quite quickly after I got promoted, they got the current system, which is um, referees going from class one right down through to, I think it's class nine or 10. But as a referee in adult football, you start as um, class seven and then four, five, which is what I am nowadays, which classes as a a senior county FA referee. And then from step forward, step four upwards, you're on the referee, the FA's ladder. um, And that's when you're starting to get to steps five and six. So, I quite quickly went then from doing Sunday football to being out in the Premier Division of the Midland Combination, which is a big jump, maybe not always in standard because you do get um, in the top divisions of Sunday League, you get players of step five, step six playing Sunday football. But the whole setup of it, where my first game was um, August Bank Holiday in the West Midlands League at Alf Church, who were a club alive and kicking today. And there was probably a couple of hundred spectators in there. And you're suddenly in this situation with neutral assistants, um, maybe an observer, assessor, as they called them back then, and players that are getting paid to play football. So a very different experience. And that, that, even today, that jump can come quite quickly if if you get promoted in a hurry, you're suddenly going from parks football into non-league football, and it, it is a very different world. Yeah, I can, I can, I can only imagine the the, the different in, in difference in in levels, and I suppose that's why the new system is in place to be able to possibly move people more gradually through through the levels. But I mean, you're much more uh, of a, of a uh, have much better understanding than I do of how how these systems these systems work. Uh, I mean, you previously mentioned, uh, or I might have mentioned that you you've done been all the way up to the to the national league level as an assistant referee. Um, yeah, the highest standard I did um, back when I was a level four um, level four referees. They would referee at what is now step five um, and be assistants in steps uh, four, three and two, two being the National League North and South. So I, I did for a couple of seasons, a number of games 
in the National League North. Uh, nowadays, there's been a, another restructure. So now step four referees, uh, are assistants, uh, sorry, step five, six referees are assistants at step three, four. They don't do the National League North now. I was fortunate that when I was doing it, I did. So I got some bank holiday local derbies in the National League North. Um, I got to um, be assistant at clubs that I'd watched as a, as a youngster, Stafford Rangers, Hensford, Tamworth, people like that. And it, yeah, it's, and I should imagine uh, those referees that have been fortunate enough to climb up to the very top. You, you do notice those jumps in standard. They can be quite significant as you, as you go through those levels. There's a, as I said, there's a massive difference between what was then Midland Combination, Premier and Sunday football. That difference, again, is massive between that level and Southern League, Northern Premier League and, and National League, North and South. The, the expectation, uh, the amount of spectators, the standard of football, it, it's, it's a big jump. I also had a spell at that time as well where I was able to referee um, Premier League under-19 matches. So, again, I was able to go to clubs like Aston Villa and um, Wolves and West Bromwich Albion and these and referee their under-19 games. And the, the standard of football in those would be um, impressive. If you're um, mm -hmm. 18, 19 and you're still on the books of a Premier League club, you're some footballer. So... Uh, yeah, yeah it's it, it 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 is that that jumping standard. I, I know guys that have gone on to be football league referees. I worked with a lot of guys that were Premier League assistants, and uh, yeah, it's a. I'm sure it's a whole different world at that level, particularly I, I, nowadays. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely. I mean, that's so incredible as a, as to be able to have that experience. Um, I imagine, and then what what a what a experience being being able to um referee young prospects who could go on to <laughs> bigger and uh, better things at, at times um at, but also just just to be a be an official and a national leagues um north level and some of the clubs you're mentoring are i don't know i've heard of or I've, you know i think I, only the other week i went and saw got to see tamworth so you know you hear these clubs and you go oh you know that's it's impressive. Um, is there a game for you I, that really sticks out? I mean, it might be your favourite or it might just be one that really sticks in, in your mind as a game that you ref? It, it, you look, I was thinking about this um, as I was driving home from work and it, I certainly know referees that could probably tell you exactly how many games they've done over the years. They record them all. I don't, never have. I've got no idea how many games I've done over the years. It's a lot. The ones that tend to stick out really are ones where something unusual happened. Um, I can remember refereeing my first cup final for the County FA. Um, obviously, that was, was the first time you've been recognised and put out at a County FA final, uh, which was decided by... Um, a last-minute penalty, which to me looked stonewall, but obviously the team on the end of it disagreed. Um, but, yeah, I, I remember just games where odd thing. I can remember doing a game at Hales Owen Town against Bath where there was a big crowd um, and my contact 
lens fell out and I had to go off um, mid-game because those who wear contact lenses know sometimes if you've got one in and one out and it's not your dominant eye, you can't see properly. Uh, and then, of course, you run off in front of best part of a thousand spectators. Everybody thinks you go into the toilet and you get um, <laughs> a load of jeers. I can remember an FA Vars tie um, where... I was with a couple of officials that I know well. This is one of the things from referee and you make new friends. Um, and I made the mistake of telling the referee, it was relatively late on in the bars, third or fourth round, that my ex-wife was going to have a boob job after the game and I was going to Manchester with her. So he decided to tell the person that was uh, manning the tannoy and it was read out uh, at the start of the game when they said the officials' names that uh, it was Linton Wood from Rugeley in Staffordshire who's going with his wife after the game for uh, a boob job. <laughs> so things like that tend to stick out in your mind. Uh, I've seen a seagull get knocked from the sky by um, a ball. I've seen goalkeepers score. And it's just things like that where um, th th those are the games that stick out in your mind serious injuries and things like that again where people have had to be um helicoptered away sadly i've very sadly done a game where a player passed away so these are the sort of for, for me those sort of games when i sit and try and remember games it's just things where something unusual happened where i tend to remember it i i, I can remember um so the, the local derby is at high level where you've had two or 3,000 spectators, playoff finals in the Northern Premier League and playoff semi-finals and things look, such as that, they, they stick out in your mind. Um, I can remember refereeing a game at Leamington when they reformed when I was a very inexperienced referee and there was five, 600 spectators and that was probably the first time I'd refereed in a crowd anywhere near that size. So that, that stuck out in my mind. Um, yeah, it's for me, it's always just things where something's happened that makes that game memorable. And it might not always be the football. It's just something that happened on the day that made it unusual. Yeah, I mean, there's some incredible, incredible memories. And I, it, make, it makes sense for us refereeing for, I think you mentioned nearly over 20 seasons now. I guess there, is, there are certain points where various games mould into one. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's sometimes I it, I'd struggle to remember every game this season, but uh, there's games from years ago that I can remember quite clearly, and it is just that that thing where something unusual makes it stand out in your mind. I qualified in 1997. I said I had a break for about five years where I'd got up to step four, and I think I just became disillusioned with it. Hmm. My son had started to play football, so I was involved in coaching his team on a Sunday and it was just the whole weekend was football. Saturday, you'd be out maybe from midday to six or seven o'clock in the evening. Then Sunday, I would be out with my son. Um, I'd probably got a bit disillusioned that I wasn't going to get promoted further. Um, I wasn't getting observations and I felt a little bit unloved, so something had to give. So I, I decided to... Um, stop refereeing I focused on helping run my son's team for a while probably six or seven seasons um, maybe not that many maybe five or six uh, and then he decided to switch to rugby um, 
which as a game probably suited him better. He, he took up football because all his mates played it. When he started playing rugby, I wasn't really involved in helping organise things, so I could just go and watch. By then, he was sort of 14 and he didn't need me to ferry him around. He could walk to the game with his friends. So I decided to have another go. I did probably a dozen Sunday league games, decided I could still do it. Didn't really want to do Sunday league football, so um, I re-registered with the Midland League and then went out back again as, a, as an assistant in the Midland League. Talking about games that are memorable, my very first game back was one um, on New Year's Day where there was an incident where a player was spat on. He was then subsequently punched, put in hospital with a broken jaw, and I was interviewed by the police afterwards. So that, that was Ooh. my first game back. So, oh, an easy, uh, easy road back in. Yeah, that got in the <laughs> national press as well. So... Uh, but yeah, I, I found as a, I think that was probably about 2014 when I came back as a, as a level five, I've got a busy job um, uh, and have had for a long time. My job can involve me being in different parts of the country or even at times in different parts of Europe and um level five as a county referee, you can do it on your own terms a little bit. You decide which leagues that you you go on um if you're not available for one week as long as you inform people in good time nobody holds it against you and um there's no real sort of politics involved you're not going for promotion you haven't got to keep um anybody happy or or worry about if you send somebody off you're going to get poor marks and you, you just go out and do the job to the best of your ability and uh that, that's kind of how I do it now. As I said, I, I referee on the local senior league and I'm assistant on the United Counties League. So still get some decent games at that standard and, and I enjoy it. And you know, certainly for the foreseeable future, that, that's how I'll carry on. Uh, and hats off too, because it, 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 you, know, you said it could be a test sometimes, but also uh, there seems to be so many positives as well. Um, to be on being a, a referee and, and and or an official within the the game, uh, and as you mentioned, so at the moment looking to to con, uh, to continue that and and, and progress. Is there a sorry, sorry? Carry on. But is is there a point when you think you'll call it a step back for for the final time? I think probably at some point. Um, there's times that I think the season, pre-season, the season before last, I was quite close to um, calling it a day after refereeing a pre-season friendly of all things where it was just so horrible mm. that you, you sort of get home and you think, why do I do this? I've just sin-binned um, two people in a pre-season friendly after giving them every warning to remember that it's a pre-season friendly and act sensibly. And it was just every single decision was being argued. And you do, I got home and really thought, what is the point in this? But I'd committed to another game a few days later and didn't want to let anybody down. So I went out and did that game. It was quite the reverse, nice game pre-season everybody's having a workout goes out everything's gone to plan and you sort of think well we just put that 
that bad day behind you. People do sometimes say, why would you do it? But yeah, you have those horrible days like that. But, but for me, I've had um, for every really bad experience, I've had 20 really good ones as a referee and met a lot of people and experienced things that I wouldn't otherwise have done. Um, so yeah, you, you stick at it. Um, I'm very experienced nowadays. So there's, there's very little that phases me. I would like to give perhaps something back to newer referees at some point. I, I couldn't see myself being an observer. I think that's perhaps not for me, uh, going out week in, week out and, and having to sit and formally uh, go through somebody's performance with them, um, perhaps mentoring in some way, um, helping a newer referee, being a voice on the end of a telephone, going and watching them four or five times a season on a, an informal basis and, and perhaps having an involvement in a club somewhere along the line is something I might wish to do at some point. Programmes seem to be a thing of the past nowadays, or at least physical ones do anyway, but um, perhaps having some involvement with a club, making sure the referees are, are looked after on match days and that, that things are organised. I know there's always a shortage of volunteers, so that might be a route I'll go down. Yeah, I, I certainly attest to the shortage of volunteers. Um, so, I mean, it is, it's, a, it is, it's great to have people who all... You know, who's stepping back from various roles, but will continue to help out in in other ways. Um, and I mean, you mentioned there some some poor experiences of of being a a match official, and you you particularly talked about how there are some, but there are many positives before and after from various other games that seem to outweigh that, but. From your experience of over 20 seasons, has fan reactions towards officiating deteriorated over time? I don't think physically being at games, certainly at the, I mean, most of the games I do have a few hundred spectators at best. And I don't particularly see that that level um, spectator behaviour being any, any worse than it has I, I saw um there was an article i think that was out a week or two back regarding um football banning orders etc that that had gone up by quite a lot um I, i'm a fan of aston villa and i i, I watch them occasionally obviously around doing um games myself um i don't particularly see behavior in those games as being any worse than it than it used to be. Um, a lot of referees I've spoken to believe, certainly in non-league levels, that player and coaches' behaviour, for whichever reason, and I couldn't put my finger on it if asked, seems to have been worse since COVID. Um, why that is, I don't know. Might be just coincidence, but you do seem to have this thing where every heavy tackle you've got people around in a group pushing and shoving, starting to try and surround the officials to sort of uh, argue what they believe is right or wrong. And it, the, the, these pushing and shoving matches, which can go from 
the referee just sort of getting everybody separated and a, a few stern telling offs to, to multiple red cards do seem to me to be more common nowadays. Yeah. Why that is, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've been on two. I've been on two games in recent years that have been abandoned. One as a referee and one as a as an assistant, and that's never happened to me previously. So it's it maybe just coincidence, cabin fever from COVID or something. Or I don't know, but it, it it does. There seems to be um, social media has something to do with it. Um, and 24-hour media on, on sports channels, there seems to be a bigger reluctance to accept decisions that, that take place mm. on a football field. Yeah, I, I think you probably said it right there, but uh, trying to work out where the correlation is, where, where the cause or the causality is, is a big it's a big stab in the dark currently. And I think there's probably lots and lots of people doing this sort of research probably for the FA and various other organisations into such things um, but unfortunately it's, it's probably a mixture of many things like you say COVID and, and various other um, issues that play into such such factors um, and I've got one written down here and I guess it's a, it's a little bit of a, qu a question from me as, as a person who looks you know, who will watch the the Amazon or the uh, the Sky commentary on Premier League games, and will watch, you know, uh, retired referees comment on the interpretation of of the law of the game, so to speak. But is there a is there a problem for for match officials with the ambiguity of of the law, or is 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 that not something that is actually seen? One of the things with, with football is that a lot of the decisions that take place during a game are matters of opinion. Um, mm. What constitutes a foul, um, handball, denying an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, these things aren't black or white. They're, they're matters of opinion. Um, somebody puts a tackle in, it can either be a fair tackle, it can be careless, which is a free kick, reckless, which is a caution, excessive force, which is a red card. What that ultimately is, is often a matter of opinion. You can get many, many uh, situations where it could be argued for two or three of those options. And um, the laws of football say that the referee has to be the one that's got to decide where it is. So people have, have to learn to accept that if there's a, a heavy tackle in the game or a situation where it could be denying an ob obvious goal-scoring opportunity, that what the referee sees from the middle of the pitch or his assistants, if he, he or she speaks to them, uh, can be different from what's seen on the touchline. And also, I know from personal experience, is that if you've got a vested interest in a team, your natural reaction for a, a borderline decision is to see it the way of your team. Um, if you get a situation on a Saturday where there's been four or five decisions that could have gone either way and they've all gone against your team, you, you probably naturally think that the referee was terrible and he's got everything wrong today. There's many, many situations where you're out there in the middle and you just think, whatever I give here, I'm going to upset somebody or the other. And you, you've just got to go out and, and have the 
the belief in your experience and your ability as a referee and give what you've seen and and stick with it. Um, obviously, if you've got assistance there, that can help you in, in certain situations. I think there's been a little bit too much uh, tweaking of the laws from IFAB, whether this is something to try and um, make it easier um, for leagues and competitions now where there's, there's VAR, where the laws for what constitutes uh, handball and uh, foul tackles, careless, reckless, excessive force, that, that the lines between certain things can be blurred, um, hands and arms being in an unnatural position and what constitutes an unnatural position. Is that part of, uh, are you trying to block the ball or is that just where your arms naturally because you've tried to jump to head a ball or jump in to get a tackle and it, it these things have probably started um, certainly in lower levels then uh, to become perhaps a little bit more complicated than they they need to be and, and people mm -hmm. certainly see things on the television and, and hear things that people say you'll hear the pundits on match of the day talking about last man for denying an obvious goal scoring opportunity but last man isn't written in the law so People then, coaches, players, supporters on a Saturday in the United Counties League, uh, if the referee only cautions somebody and doesn't send him off for denied a goal-scoring opportunity, they'll be screaming that it was last man. But that's, that's not the case. It depends on um, where the, the distance from the goal, the direction of play, uh, whether the player was in control of the ball or likely to be in control of the ball and the location and the number of defending players. And it's not black and white. You can sit and argue, as they often do in the studio after the game, mm. about these decisions. If you're refereeing, you've got to make your mind up very quickly and, and try and live with that decision. And that, that's, that's, yeah, I, I think people sometimes have just got to look at it and just accept what happens that there's going to be close decisions and they're not all going to go your way. I was at Villa Park recently and there were several occasions where everybody around me rises up and shouts that the referee doesn't know what he's doing. I'm sitting there thinking, well, he does it actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I fully appreciate that, that, that at the end of the day, it is yourself and the assistants who are out there and, and there's, you know, there's only so many eyes eyes there which can influence or make it a, such a decision um, at the end of the day. And as spectators, we may have more angles of the the, the field of play, but also we're, we're not in the, the position that you are out there um, on, the, on the field. Um, and, and I guess one of the other problems that I, or certainly something that I've noticed of recent, and having talked to many people who are in and around clubs and also in in the league um, in the league officials as they are have stated that there are referee shortages across the country and um, I mean I've got some stats here how viable you might consider them I, I don't know but uh, I've got here written down that 10 maybe 10,000 match officials, have left the uh, left the game in in recent years. It, are you surprised at all by problems of refugee referee shortages? No, 
Um, I think certainly going right back to when I started, I mentioned the game earlier where I, I very nearly threw in the town towel halfway through my second game. Um, coming into football um, as a referee can be a bear pit. The, the, the people out there, the parents, if it be an under eights game uh, or be it a men's Sunday league game, that they will not care that you're only refereeing your second, third game. Mm. In many instances, in children's football, those referees might be under 18 and that there just seems mm. to be this um, unrealistic expectation that at those grassroots levels that referees are going to come in and get everything right, never make a mistake. Or even, as I mentioned just now, where it's a close decision and it just didn't go your way. You might think it's wrong. The other team think it's right. The referee give what they see. Uh, it, it can be very, very difficult. I don't know statistics, but there must be a lot that, that come in and, and quite quickly decide that this isn't for them. That then has a knock-on effect uh, that there isn't a big enough pool of officials. Some people might get promoted too quickly and, and find themselves at a level that they're not perhaps immediately ready for and, and might have benefited another season or two at the, the next level down. Um, and then guys like myself that decide at some point to to hang up their whistle that might be because they've just had a game where they've had enough like I nearly did a couple of years ago and there's, there's nobody coming in to replace them um other effects of it is, is guys like me I'm, I'm 55 I, I I should perhaps be um pushing some of my time that I've got to spend in in football to helping newer officials but I'm needed out there on the line and in the middle so the, the time I have got available for football at the moment, I, I spend um, out actually officiating. I think people have got to realise that if they, they want to get all their games covered by qualified officials, they, they've got to treat them better. They've got to stop copying what they see on the TV and surrounding referees, uh, shouting either from 30 yards away or in the faces, Parents stood on the touchline. I saw some pretty shocking stuff when um, when my son was playing football. Referees under 18 in tears because they've got so much abuse. Parents fighting amongst themselves. Um, yeah, it, it, people have, have got to actually get a, a little bit of perspective about what they expect to see in grassroots football and in in all levels of football and, and just accept that football is a is a game and it's a game that people treat very passionately but there will be things that aren't black and white there are many many decisions that are just a matter of opinion mm. and sometimes that goes against you in every football match you see players and coaches will make mistakes that directly affect the outcome of the game and that's exactly the same with officials and people have just got to learn to count to 10 sometimes and, and, and treat referees better otherwise you'll just end up with situations where non-league football gets its officials covered but you'll, you'll be having parks football on on 
Sundays where you've got more games without officials than you have with. Yeah. Uh, I guess my, my next question, I mean, how uh, I, I feel sorry for even asking this because it is how, how do you even begin to answer? But um, and, and I, there's a reason I didn't ask, can we uh, fix, fix it? Because I know that you know, there are probably people far above us having this conversation already. But is the impact of, of match officials leaving the game, is, is there a way to reverse it? Is there a way to get more people involved to keep, those, as you said, younger people who are leaving the game because of abuse of that? Is there a way to keep them in the game but happier, if that makes sense? I think uh, there's a lot of initiatives to attract match officials, to attract um, match officials from a, a wider selection of the, the population. Um, from uh, sort of minority groups and just people in general into football. I think supporting new referees is an absolute must, a, a vital aspect of it. That just that the people going into it um, where it can be so tough if everything goes wrong, uh, your confidence evaporates. That just providing that that support, um, but but really some of it with the the behaviour aspect of it, that that can only be done, I feel sadly by stronger action. I, I, mm. I'm active on Twitter, and, and and you're active on Twitter. I'm sure you've seen some of the things that I have where certain leagues. Uh, I think particularly I saw one in Liverpool where they've actually uh, closed all fixtures for. Uh, a couple of weeks because of um, behavioural situations, but that also has to go up and higher up the up the ladder. I I won't name specific incidents, but there's there's been a lot of videos that you see on Twitter where there's been some quite appalling behaviour, um, and, and that's really got to be dealt with. But likewise, if you get a Sometimes it might be just a few clubs that cause problems in a, a particular league. You, if people are consistently um, causing serious problems, be that violence to other players, violence to match officials, um, continued poor discipline, they, they've got to be prevented from taking part. It, it spoils it for everybody. I, I mentioned when my son was playing, um, and I saw some appalling behaviour, but probably in reality that a lot of that behaviour was over the five or six years I was involved, it was the same two or three clubs that that had that that same bad behaviour. Um, but I, I know that there's um, incidents where you've seen players or people involved in football getting... Long, longer bans for betting irregularities than, than people who've assaulted match officials. And it, it's strong action, probably realistically. Every week on Twitter, you'll see things, players fighting, coaches screaming in match officials' faces. It's tough action is the, is the only thing. That if, however, that's done, long bans, fines, points, deductions... It, it's probably really only that 
strong action that is, is going to prevent it from happening. Um, I think probably some referees, I probably include myself in that, would be a little bit frustrated sometimes where you see certain things go on at higher levels and seemingly go off unpunished. Um, and then that behaviour is replicated in grassroots football because people have seen it on the TV and they think it's acceptable. I, I, I mean, it's a difficult one, to be honest, uh, to, to, to put a finger on and, and say, this is how we, we solve it here and now. And, and unfortunately, I think it's something that's going to be an issue for the foreseeable future. Um, and, and I can only hope, like you say, that there is a, 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 um, a considerable response from those in, in authority and in different FAs um, and, and associations that will act accordingly um, and, and with the right responses. But uh, like you say, it's, it's um, very difficult when it's coming from the top down, um, this, this filter of uh, unacceptable behaviour. Um, I think there's, uh, I believe there's going to be trials of um, body cameras in um, grassroots football and it'll certainly be interesting to see how that proceeds and whether it makes uh, a difference, whether people maybe think twice um, before they act in a certain way, if they know that they're going to be on camera. Um, remains to be seen whether it works or not. I personally, uh, wouldn't want to wear a body camera if I felt that I'd got to um, do so for my own protection. It would probably be the time I thought I'd got to hang up my own whistle, but I, I, I'm also um, old enough and wise enough to realise that I'm a very experienced um, referee and that certain situations are not going to phase me that might be extremely intimidating to somebody who's only just qualified as a referee. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see the, the results of that and whether it does get uh, rolled out nationwide uh, in the foreseeable future. Um, so, but thank you for, for that in, insightful image into the, the state of uh, refereeing in, in our country um, at the moment. And I mean, we're going to continue with the, the tough questions. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we always do the, uh, the tough ones over here. Um, and we're, we're going to, take a focus on more on non-league uh, football and I'm going to ask you how important to football is non-league from step five down how, how important is that uh, I think the whole pyramid in this um, in this country is probably unparalleled anywhere in the world if you're going um, in England, down to step six, the 10th the level of football, every club's got floodlights, um, an enclosed ground, separate dressing rooms. Many now are, are starting to get um, 4G pitches that are, are in use throughout the week. Uh, and, and they can be a well-run non-league club, can be a real um, community hub. Um, there's been some dialogue on the sort of local social media pages for the the local senior league that step seven seems to be a little bit the sort of um, forgotten level of, of non-league football that step seven clubs are no longer permitted to enter the FA Vars. Um, they're not getting the potential 
prize money from FA uh, competitions. They get very little um, financial support from um, from the FA, from the county FAs. And then if you're not in that step six level, you're often competing against other clubs nearby for spectators that it can be increasingly costly and difficult to, to run a step seven club. But it, I think it it is a very, very important football. You, you can lose count of the amount of players that have maybe slipped the professional net and then subsequently go on to, to play at the top level. Jamie Vardy being a, an example that springs to mind. I think he played for Stocksbridge Park Steels, uh, you know, and ended up being um, a proven goal scorer in the Premier League and international level for, for England. So it, and a lot of these clubs run various youth teams from sometimes from very young ages. So their, their clubhouses are used for weddings and um, birthday celebrations. So that they can be a real community hub. And I, I think overall, um, football in non-league, there, there'll be success stories and clubs that fall by the wayside, but it, it is quite strong. I think there's probably a little bit more um, rejigging that can be done to reduce the amount of travel and perhaps, as I mentioned, integrate step seven a little bit more. But um, it, it's a strong system. It, it's uh, I've been in uh, in Spain and Germany and seen matches in their um, fourth and fifth levels, and they're, they're kind of like. You know, lower non-league levels in in this country compared sometimes to the facilities and the, the level of football. So it's it is a vital part of football in this country for sure. And and I'm going to finish off our, our difficult questions before we go on to our a little lighter um, and more trivial side, I guess. Um, what what advice would you give to someone who? My, who may may or may not be uh, younger, but who's looking at the possibility of being a match official in the future? The, the, the practical advice, as I said earlier, is that certainly when you're out there doing the job, is, is to have that confidence to, to sell your decision and, and to stick with what you believe. To, it was an advice, piece of advice that was given to me early on. Um, was to appear confident, even if you don't feel confident. Um, certainly, my own experience of going from playing to becoming a referee, don't be afraid to use your, your whistle. Another piece of advice I was given very early on uh, was preventative fouls. And that mm. is just having that ability to recognise that this, if left, you might want to play an advantage or just look for a few seconds to see if an advantage develops and then that other tackle comes flying in far worse and before you know you've got people piling into each other just learn to spot those preventative fouls to look when to blow your whistle that's going to slow things down maybe break up a situation give people a few seconds to sort of calm down by just giving that easy foul in terms of the bigger picture just seek support don't do it on your own through, through social media now and referees associations it's very very easy to find the other referees in your area and you know certainly if anybody around my area approached me from social media and said um 
you know, I've just qualified as a referee, had a bad day. Can I DM you or have a chat over the phone? You know, I would absolutely be willing to help. So, you know, find those officials locally. If there's any training sessions that, that the guys do, uh, you know, go along, go along to any RA meetings or, you know, just where guys are meeting and having a beer or two to, to chat about referee just seek support because support if you may not get it centrally from the fa or the county fa in every situation um you'll certainly find it from your colleagues brilliant uh, yeah thank you that i i, I mean i'm not even a match fisher and I, I feel like that's great advice there um for for, for anybody but particularly for those who are looking at, at that sort of position uh, and we're getting to our general football chat now um well, we do. We have a few questions here, most of them subject to opinion, um, but we we have a bit of fun with them anyway. And I, I'm going to start off with a with a tricky one, I'd say. So, from all the footballers in the whole of history, who makes a five-a-side team for yourself? I did have a think about this one um, for a while. Um, being a Villa fan. I did want to include a Villa player and I've probably got an easy one for that with the goalkeeper in that he's just become the first Villa player to win the World Cup. Um, and he's, I would say, the best um, Villa goalkeeper I've seen um, in my time. So my goalkeeper is going to be Emilio Martinez, which is uh, nice to get a Villa player in it. Um, if you've got a five-a-side team, I guess you want to have people that can control the ball, see a pass, be able to move around the pitch. Um, I want a good defender and four out of the five are players that I've actually physically seen play football. Um, so in terms of my defender, um, I did think Bobby Moore, but I didn't see him, unfortunately. So I went for Rio Ferdinand, uh, cultured defender, can put his foot on the ball, um, could read the game um, and was just a very good footballer. So Rio Ferdinand would be my out-and-out -out defender. Um, my guy that's going to cover the whole pitch um, played in the very first professional game that I saw for West Bromwich Albion um, against Nottingham Forest, Brian Robson. Um, knew where the goal was, but you'd also see him uh, doing the hard work back in his, uh, in his own half, in his own penalty box. Seconds later, he might be in the other penalty box. So, uh, as a kid watching um, England in the World Cups in the 80s, it was Brian Robson was the one that you were looking out for. What am I up to there? That's three. So, number four, um, looking at the best players that I've actually, perhaps most gifted players that I've seen. Um, Another, unfortunately, I'm not a big fan of Manchester United, but Eric Cantona, um, I think in that sort of format, just a very, very gifted player. Um, just somebody that was able to see what was happening, do the unexpected, um, maybe rile the opposition a little bit here and there, hopefully not get sent off. Um, <laughs> and then for my last one, uh, I'm going for a player that I haven't seen and I'll Two fairly obvious ones, and they're only ones I've seen on the television, both Argentinians, Diego Maradona or Lionel Messi. And I decided to go for Messi because I think he's more of a team player, 
uh, he's lived a better life, um, and he's perhaps in pure gift for football. You might put Maradona ahead of him, but um, Marad uh, Messi's been that team player, the one that would just live his life in the right way and he would be a cool head and just uh, he'd, he'd get your goal certainly in a five-a-side format and hold on to the ball when you needed him to so that's my five I reckon that's one of the best I've ever heard on here I'd have to say watching Cantona assist Messi I could think I could do that all day long <laughs> um, and we, we asked you for a bit, bit of a prediction and I'll ask it for um for, for next season, I guess, because this one, in certain ways, is almost fairly predictable. But from next season, from 2023, 2024, who do you think your Premier League and Champions League winners will, will be? I think Man City will win the Champions League at some point sooner rather than um, later. Uh I still suspected uh, that Man City would win the Premier League this season. I'm a little bit less certain now, but um, it's difficult to fully predict this season until everybody's signed who they're going to sign. But Arsenal have got a thinner squad, so a couple of injuries they could drop off. Um, it, it's probably pretty boring, uh, and I'm not a fan of Man City either, but <laughs> I could see Man City doing a Champions League and a Premier League double at some point. Yeah, yeah, I can see that too. And it is a favourite answer, I think. Um, seeing uh, the, the squad that they have and the depth that they have it is quite simply a, a different level to many teams out there. So I, I could definitely see them, if not this year, then next year. And I mean, I'm saying that I'm hoping that they don't do it this year as an Arsenal fan. I'm fully behind my team <laughs> getting the Premier League at least this season. They're doing amazing things at the moment. It's uh... No, it's yeah. You, it's they, they keep going when everyone thinks they're going to drop off. So uh, it's the best team in my lifetime. So I'm I'm more than happy right now watching them. Um, so yeah, it's it's well. I say in my lifetime, I was alive for the Invincibles, but I don't remember them. So uh, I should put that out there before anybody comments. You were there for them. <laughs> my own team after many years in the doldrums, other than getting promoted from the Championship under. Unai Emery, Villa do finally start to be showing signs of uh, rousing themselves a little bit and at least just being, you know, certainly as I think most Villa fans would accept, uh, at least being in the mix of a qualifying for European football and maybe a, getting in the situation where we get a cup run again uh, and, and have chances of getting to finals and possibly actually winning something for the first time since 19. I think it was 97 when we beat Leeds. I was certainly there the last time we won a cup, when we won the League Cup. So, uh... Yeah, oh, well, I, I hope so too, because there's some great players in that squad. Um, and it'd be nice to see some 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 competitive games um, for Villa uh, in particular. And I'm going to ask you, I mean, it's the age-old question, and I feel like we're coming to the end of the road with it, unfortunately, just with the state of things over the last uh, three or four months. But in their prime... Who do you pick, Messi or Ronaldo? Messi. Messi. I had a feeling it was in your five aside that might be the giveaway. Just purely because uh, I understand the arguments. Obviously, Ronaldo's done it in different leagues, but just the 
the team player aspect of uh, of Messi. That's my wife trying to ring me. I'll just <laughs> put her on pause for a minute. Yeah, I, I think that just the just being the team player, and obviously now he's won the World Cup, and uh, you know at times he kind of dragged his team through. She's not going to have it. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, Messi. Messi. And, and the final question, who who in the world right now would you consider to be the best of the best? You, you'd probably... Messi certainly passed his... Um, passed his peak. Um You know he, he he's done it now. He, he's got the World Cup, um, but you know I, I think he's past his peak now. Um, Mbappe was certainly impressive in the World Cup, um, and he, he's only going to get better over the next uh, three or four years. So nostalgically, um, Messi, but I think you know, Lassie's his best days are done, and um, the crown's going to be passed on um whether we get just that one or two outstanding players or whether we get you know five or six that that that, that come through um it'd be nice to see someone like Jude Bellingham a, a, an English player come through and get to that sort of level perhaps a little bit young at the moment but he he certainly looked like he was going in the right direction in the world cup he's got a big um decision to make about where he goes if he decides to leave dortmund because if they get that wrong, you, you you see these players that have um, looked like they've got the world at their feet. It's all suddenly mm. gone um, awry because they, they haven't chose the right club to go to. So yeah, uh, Mbappe seems to be the one that is, is perhaps best positioned to take that um, role at the moment. I was impressed with him in the World Cup. Certainly, certainly. And it certainly looks like he's still got room to grow as well. So I can only see him getting better in the future. Um I'm going to thank you, Linton, for coming on uh, with some brilliant anecdotes, stories um, and some some great opinions as well and some great tips for, for those of the younger generation as well. So thank you so much for coming on and being a part of the podcast. Thank you for uh, inviting me. It's, it's been a pleasure. And certainly nowadays, I, I just I try and engage with people about referees, um, try to do it in a in an open way where we can all have a conversation and maybe just encourage people to look at it and think of it from the other side and maybe just count to 10 on occasion when that, um, that, that key decision just hasn't gone your team's way uh, and just have a thing. I, I certainly got myself into trouble once when I was secretary of a club by ill-chosen words in the local paper. And I got a letter from the uh, County <laughs> FA. So, uh, yeah, I, I before I was a referee, I got myself into trouble once. So I know how it is, but just we're all football fans. We love football. Hopefully the, the, the conversation has shown that. And um, we're out there just trying to make it happen on a Saturday, the same as the volunteers, the players, the coaches and the supporters. Without a doubt. And, and hopefully everybody at home has got the uh, the, the, the same thing out of it that I particularly have which is a sense of uh, a better understanding of our our game from from different angle 
Um, so if you haven't already, um, it goes without saying, follow us on Spotify and Apple, uh, Back of the Net podcast. Thank you very much for listening. This is season two. And if you haven't already, go and check us out on YouTube. It is the Weymouth Street Massive. Subscribe, help get us to uh, 500 subscribers. That's where we're on our way to. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you very, very soon. I've been Ben. This has been Back of the Net, episode one, season two.